Well, our midweek teaching series is back after taking two weeks off during half term and we're back with a brand new book and we're going to be jumping straight into the passage today. We're looking at the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament found just before the New Testament in Matthew's Gospel. So grab your Bibles, have them ready in front of you because we're going to launch in this evening at Malachi chapter one in this four part series in this wonderful but difficult book of God's word. Now for those who like movies, uh, quite often filmmakers make a prequel to explain what happened before. The prime example of this is Star Wars. If any of you like Star Wars, we have no idea what is prequel, sequel, what is current times, who knows? But what we do know is that the maker of Star Wars consistently tried to make films to explain what has been happening before those moments. Well today, if you will, we're going to be looking at a prequel of the birth of Jesus, an explanation of what happened just before Jesus. Jesus was born. I say just before, the last words that were spoken before Jesus was born. Because Malachi was written just over 400 years before the birth of Christ. But during these 400 years between Malachi and Christ, God does not speak to his people. We have nothing in the Bible. During these 400 years, we have silence. So from the last book, the last word of the Old Testament to the first word in Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament is 400 years of God being silent. Yet this is still the God's word. It's still inspired by God, breathed by God and written to the nation of Israel. It was relevant 2,400 years ago in Malachi's time. It is relevant today in 2020. And what we're going to see over the coming weeks is that Malachi gives a picture of a people who imagine that they are right in all circumstances, that they've got everything right, that they are on the right path with the right mindset. But what we're going to find out is they are in fact wrong in every form of way. We're also going to see that God will use very strong language to rebuke the priests and the nation of Israel. And his message is so strong in Malachi that he falls silent for 400 years. This message really is a wake up and listen moment. God's words in Malachi silence him for 400 years. This is important. This is going to be clear messaging from God for his people. And further to all of this, I believe that there's some great biblical principles in the book of Malachi that show us how desperately we need Jesus and how we can rejoice that he has indeed come and saved sinners and set them free from the sin that entangled them. So I'm excited to get into Malachi chapter one, four weeks. We're gonna start with chapter one this evening and we're gonna jump straight in. Malachi chapter one and verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. An oracle is a vision or a specific word from God that is described as a burden. A clear foundation is being laid here in the book of Malachi. What will come in this book is not of Malachi, but it's of God. And not only is it of God, but it's burdensome as a message. And we read that the words are for Israel. God was specifically speaking to his people. Now we know very little about the author Malachi except that his name literally means my messenger. The meaning of the name has caused much debate as to whether the letter was written by Malachi, a person called Malachi, or it was written by a nameless author who God simply refers to as my messenger. Either way, what is certain is that God is writing a word for his people and they need to listen up. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases it. 
The task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. This was the book of Malachi, to make things right. It's not going to be smooth. It's not going to be easy. It's about making things right, because clearly something is wrong. As we move through chapter one today, we're going to see how this message of God today in chapter one refers to the sin of the people. Specifically, we're going to see two distinct sins and how God responds to each one of these. Now, the first is found in verses two through five, and that is being the people's doubt of God's love. They no longer thought that God indeed loved them. They doubted it. They questioned it. And we're going to see how God responds. We pick up in verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left its heritage to the jackals to the desert. If Eden says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, if your earthly father stood here today, stood right in front of you and said, I love you, what would your response be? I think most of us would say, I love you too. Certainly if I say I love you to my three girls, I would hope that they would respond with, I love you too. But just look at the response here of the people of God, the response that the people gave to God saying, I love you. Their response is, how have you loved us? Or in other words, prove it. And this is the amazing thing about God. He in this moment doesn't chastise them for asking the, the question, prove it. Rather, he does just that. He proves his love for the people. To understand this, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 25. Abraham, through whom God promised to make a, a great nation and bless the world, had a son, Isaac. Isaac then had twin boys called Jacob and Esau. Now, through these twin boys became two nations. Through D Jacob, we have the nation of Israel. And as we read in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus comes from the lineage of Jacob. Now we also have Esau and Esau had a nation come from him and that nation was called Edom, a nation of godless people, a nation that produced Herod, the very man who would try to kill Jesus as a young boy. Now as the reader, we know that God has loved his people, but for the nation and people of Israel, this was something that they often missed. And the question has to come as they've questioned, well, how has God loved them? God refers to Jacob and Esau, but how is that proving the love of God? Well, God points out that the nation of Israel have been blessed when they so easily could have been cursed. You see, it was common practice that the firstborn would be blessed and receive the birthright. And that is still the case today, that the eldest child is blessed with the birthright of being the first to inherit. Yet in the case of Jacob and Esau, just look at Genesis verse, uh, chapter 25 and from verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, It is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. 
the older shall serve <clears throat> the younger. God reminded Israel of his promise. Or in other words, God was saying, look what I have done for you. I have loved Jacob. I have set up a nation. I have blessed the nation. And not only have I done this for you, I will work through you as a nation. God's love was so great for Jacob that it seemed that he hated Esau and the Edomites. The nation of Israel whom God is addressing, who came from Jacob, were consistently and constantly blessed by God. Even at this stage of writing in their history, the Edomites would receive, just as the people of Israel, the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. But it was only ever Israel that had the promise that they would be restored, that the remnant of Israel would be restored. However, it only takes but a quick glance over the word of God to get the situation and see how God is blessed. I love the way Warren Wearsby describes this and really gives us a picture of the blessing of God. He says, God spared the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. Then he moved Cyrus to issue the decree to enable the Jews to return to Judah and build the temple. He provided the leadership of Joshua, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah and Ezra. He gave the prophetic ministry of Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. Had his people obeyed the terms of the covenant, the Lord would have blessed them more. You see, God has decided by his grace to bless the nation of Israel who were born from Jacob. And God has done so by great leaders, by the prophetic voice, by blessing the nation, by ensuring that they are blessed rather than cursed like the Edomites. He loved them and he can prove centuries of love and care towards his people by the amount he has poured into this nation. But I want us to see that their doubting of God's love leads on to the second sin of the people, that of dishonouring the name of God. You see, you don't start with disobedience of God. You start with a lack of love for God. That lack of love for God then leads into disobedience. And so the people question the love of God, question the very the centuries of his love and care. And because of that questioning, they lead into the disobedience of dishonouring the name of God. Verse 6. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? God shifts this attention from the whole of Israel, reminding them of his love for them, to specifically speaking now to the priests. God is the father over Israel. He is the master over his people. Yet the priests do not honour God. The priests do not fear God. Instead, they despise the name of the Lord. And look once again at the response. It is not one of remorse, not one of humility. It's one of questioning and demand. Prove it, God. Prove how we've despised your name. It's such an insolent and, and insubordinate people that they question God even when he speaks truth into the situation. And do you know what God does? He proves that the people have dishonoured his name. Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And uh, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? 
Now, before Jesus, the priests were responsible for offering animal sacrifice to appease God's wrath and to give a temporary cover over sins committed. Further to this, there was regular offerings that were to be given always within strict rules given by God to the nation of Israel. And they were to be obeyed, these rules obeyed and honoured as sacrifices were given. And we have an extended and detailed look at this in Leviticus chapters 1 and 7. But what I want to kind of raise here is what we know is that not only are the priests uh, meant to be giving the sacrifices, but they're the only ones that could enter the temple with these sacrifices. And that is why God takes from the big picture that, that Israel has questioned the love of God and zones right into the priests because they had the clear function of bringing the sacrifices of the people into the temple of God. And we're told in Leviticus that the sacrifice had to be spotless with no flaws and no physical deformity. The sacrifice had to be offered in faith and killed by the priest that was offering it. And none of this should surprise us for God is a God of detail and order. He was clear with his people. The sacrificial system, if honoured and obeyed, would give temporary cover for sins committed. Rules were placed before the people, rules were to be kept, rules were to be honoured, and by the grace of God, he would show mercy on the people. What was happening here in Malachi is that the priests were keeping the best animals. They were fattening them up and they were using them for feasts for themselves. Instead of offering God the best they had, they were offering the lame, the blind and diseased animals that they refused to eat. They were offering God the leftovers of what the nation had. The priests were completely disobedient to Leviticus 22 verse 20. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it is not acceptable for you. The Lord's name was being ridiculed, for the priests took little care and consideration of what it was right to offer before the Lord. They were mocking the Lord. They were offering less than was best. And what was worse is they were thinking they could get away with it. You see, mocking often comes in two ways. First, the action. The action was offering up a dreadful sacrifice. But worse, the thought that you would get away with it was what God was angered by. Verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on the altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God loves his people and he has shown this to the people of Israel over centuries. But it's clear he is not pleased with the people. He is not pleased with what they're doing because it's clearly showing their hearts have become unfaithful towards God. It would be better, and notice this, that they would just shut the doors of the temple than to continue to offer these dreadful sacrifices to the Lord. Do you see how bad the situation's got? The Lord is calling that someone would just shut the doors of the holiest of holiest places because defiling the Lord's name would be worse than shutting the door of the temple. The Lord has absolutely no pleasure in his people. There's no joy, no hope, no satisfaction in what his people are doing. And the Lord will no longer accept their half-hearted sacrifices before him. A God who would accept such a lowly, twisted and dreadful sacrifice is not a God that is worthy of praise. This is a God that is worthy of praise. This is the creator God. This is the one who has loved them, cared for them, has sustained them for centuries. He deserves the best. And do you see what's at stake here? The name of the Lord. 
Not only does God deserve what he has commanded, but it's important for God not to just roll over and accept what defiles his name. For it's the Lord's name that is great. It's the Lord's name that should be feared. It's the Lord's name that should be respected. And God will ensure that that will happen. What we're seeing here is strong language. Remember what I said? What comes afterwards is 400 years of silence. God is making his word known. He will not be mocked. He will not have his name defiled. And he will sort it out now. Verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that is, its food, be despised. But you say, what weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It seems the priests were even worse than was originally thought. Not only were they mocking God by allowing dreadful sacrifices to be given, but they actively allowed the word of God to be disobeyed. You see, a, a sacrifice would be promised, one uh, promised without blessing, uh, sorry, without blemish, one that was perfect. Uh, an individual would say, this is the sacrifice that the Lord's deserve. But when the individual turned up at the temple, they wouldn't bring the one without blemish that is perfect, that was promised to the Lord. They would bring a lame animal. They would essentially cheat the system, promise one thing but give something else. They would keep the best at home. They would keep what they wanted and they would give God the leftovers. And worse, the priests enabled this behaviour by accepting the sacrifice. Knowing that a vow was being broken, knowing that the individual was doing it all for personal gain, the priest would still support it. Now, it seems crazy that the priests allowed this, but ultimately it showed their own hearts. They didn't give God their best. So why should people in the nation of Israel be expected to give God their best? However, these verses give a hint to another reason a more selfish reason, and I think a more evil reason than apathy of obedience to God. For the priests and their families were fed via the sacrificial system. If people didn't bring sacrifices, then the priests and their families didn't have food on their tables. Now in tough times, the priests decided to ensure food on their table by accepting whatever anyone was willing to sacrifice. Rather than turning to God for his provision and trusting that the Lord will keep them, they turned to their own devices and ensured that they would be well fed. They accepted any offering that came and they would have feasts and they would feed themselves. They didn't care that they were profaning the name of the Lord. They didn't care that they were doing it for immoral reasons. All they cared for was their own agenda, their own wants and their own desires. So you see, what we have in chapter one is the people of God doubting the love of God, questioning it, really walking away from God, and then moving towards an active disobedience in despising the name of the Lord. They do both by simple yet devastating disobedience to the clear words of God. Their disobedience shows that their heart is for themselves and not for the Lord. And as I said at the beginning, there is a picture of a people who imagine that they're right in doing everything, that they've got it down, that they know what they're doing, when in fact everything they are doing at this stage is wrong. They have dishonoured God. They have disrespected him. They have angered him. They have defiled his table. And because they did this, the Lord brings about his wrath upon them. And what we'll see in the rest of Malachi is that God has had enough. 
What we'll see in this uh, wonderful but difficult book is that he will no longer accept the sacrifices of the people. He will not have his name muddied any longer and he will be feared as Lord of hosts. He will be the King of Kings. He will be the Lord of Lords and the people are going to know it. You see, the language of this uh, one chapter shows the dreadful nature of the people of Israel, how unfaithful they've become and almost how arrogant they've become in thinking they're right. And it shows a Lord who will not be mocked, who's not going to just let this slide because one too many times have, have occurred and it's time to correct all of this wrong, sinful behaviour. It's not a very uplifting start of a series, is it? It's pretty dreadful, actually, especially on our run up to Advent. But I think there's such valuable lessons we need to see in this chapter today. And there's three things, maybe four, if I have time, that I want to pull out and encourage us as we look at this chapter. Number one, the very clear application, I think, that comes from Malachi chapter one is don't forget. Don't forget. Are we not like the people of God? forgetting what God has done in our time in our lives? Do we not look around us in this time of COVID-19 and ask where the love of God is? Do we not question the evil that seems to prevail and wonder where God is? Are we not like Habakkuk and demand an answer from God to prove his love, to prove that this is in his plan, to say, do you know what, we don't get it, so you've got to prove it to us? Are we not like that people? Certainly I know I am often and I'm almost convinced that the church is that we so often question where the love of God is. How easily we've forgotten Romans 5.8 but God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners Christ died for us. How easily we've forgotten Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see we look to earth we look to the earthly things and we see trials, we see persecution, we see pain, we see disease, we see COVID-19. We look to the church and it's physically closed and this endless COVID-19 rules. We see a lockdown looming tomorrow and we question, where is God? Prove to us, God, that you're there. Prove to us that you love us. And you know, God does just that. While you were sinners, while you were in the grime and dirt of your sin, God sent Jesus to save you so that you would no longer face condemnation. You would have the promise of an eternal kingdom to look forward to. And so I have a question for you today. Have you looked at this earthly world and thought, where is the love of God? And completely forgotten, the love of God is in Jesus. What more do we deserve? Do we deserve and are we entitled to a world that is perfect, that is enjoyable? That's not what God promises. God gave us Jesus so that while we were still sinners, we would have hope for an eternal life, that he would send Jesus so that we would deal in our lives with this sin. We would humble ourselves before King Jesus and we would be called children of God. We would be co-heirs to the eternal kingdom that is spotless, blameless, without blemish, and that we would enjoy it for eternity. So friends, stop looking to this world and forgetting that God loves you. Look to Christ, know that God loves you, know that he sent to Jesus and know this world is lying to you. 
Don't forget Jesus. Don't forget that he saved you from your sin. Don't forget that you're no longer condemned. Don't forget that the kingdom of heaven is waiting for us. Don't forget that this is an earthly, temporary home and we are waiting for our eternal home. Don't forget that God is in control. Don't forget that he is supreme over all things. Don't forget that he sustains all things. Don't forget that he gives you hope and joy and peace in your life. Don't forget Jesus in this time. The second thing I want to bring about from Malachi 1 is this, give what is deserved. Give what is deserved. The major issue in Malachi 1 is these dreadful sacrifices offered to God. I want you to consider Mark 12 verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. God was right in Deuteronomy 4 when he said you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. God was right when he said in Joshua 22 that we are to serve him. He was right in Deuteronomy 30 when he said that we should obey him. And he was right in Psalm 9 when he said we should praise him with all of our hearts. You see, God loves the word all. The thing is, we don't like the word all, do we? We prefer some. We live as if the verse read like this. Love the Lord your God with some of your heart with some of your soul, with some of your mind, and with some of your strength. But God doesn't want some. He wants all of us. He wants all. That is why he says, love, the, love, love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The thing is, God is not interested in our leftovers. He is not interested in a half-hearted love towards him. That doesn't even exist. You can't love God and be half-hearted. I better give something to God because, well, I guess I should, was the issue in Malachi. And God says to each one of us, where is my honour? Where is my respect? John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. God commands us to honour him. God commands us to respect him. God commands us to love him. And the question we have tonight is, are you loving God with all you have? Are you loving God with your leftovers? Matthew 6 21 says for where your treasure is there your heart will be also the question is does your life show that you love God with all you have or does it show that your treasure is found on this earth compare the hours you spend shopping online with the hours you spend with reading God's word compare the money you spend this month on yourselves and your own family rather than the money that you give to the Lord's work Compare the energy you've put into spending time with family in your own home and building up your earthly kingdom compared to the energy you spend in time of prayer and Bible study each day. There's so many comparisons you could make between an earthly life and a heavenly life, but the question will always remain the same. Does your life add up to someone that loves the Lord with all you have? Do you give God what he deserves? Do you give him the first fruits of everything that comes in? And I'm not just talking about finances here. I'm talking about the time you use in the morning. I've said this before in a sermon. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Scroll through Facebook, go to Instagram, go to Twitter, or is it going to God? What's the last thing you do at night? Pray before God or quickly scan that social media again? We need to give God our best at all times. So often we get into the failure of the priests, of the people of Israel, because we don't give God what he deserves. He deserves all of you. And here is why. Because he gave all of himself for you. Because in my first point, we need to not forget Jesus. In my second point, we need to remember, we don't forget him because he gave his life, all of it. 
He died on a cross for you. He gave everything he had. He gave his precious son Jesus to die a cruel death for you. So how dare we give God anything less than our own lives in return? We need to wake up to this. God was silent for 400 years after he said this because it rings true. He doesn't need to say it time and time again. This is the truth. God deserves all worthy, all praise, all glory. He deserves the right for our whole life commitment to him. He deserves the right for the whole devotion to him and we are to give it to him and we should give it to him willingly. I encourage you to consider that this week. Where are you not being all for Jesus? It's time to change that. And it's time to be all for Jesus in everything you do. Third and finally, and it'll seem that this is similar, but third and finally, honour God. Honour God. Here is my challenge as we are on the eve of a national lockdown here in England. Don't spend the next month in lockdown ranting and raving, getting grumpy and seeking earthly pleasure. Don't spend this month wanting and desperately seeking the world's pleasures. Don't spend this month in turmoil because you can't get what this earth has to offer. No, spend this month giving God the honour. Give him your attention, give him your focus, take your hearts off this world and place it on King Jesus. Give him the honour he deserves. Spend this month more in prayer, more in Bible study. Speak the words of the Lord to your children. Pray with them. Phone the church members. Be part of the family and talk about God's word. Study it. Know it more. Find a way to spread the gospel through cards being sent to neighbours. Do something that shows that you honour God with all your life. And in that honouring of God, he will bless. Remember, nation of Israel, you will be blessed if you bless Israel. You as a nation, if you honour me, will be blessed. The Lord is not going to bless us unless we honour him. That is clear. And so Jesus has given his life for you. We should never forget that. Jesus is worthy of our whole life devotion because he gave his life for us. And Jesus is worthy of all the honour because our lives are all for Jesus. And that's all we want. We don't want earthly renown. We don't want earthly success. We don't even want normality on this earth. What we want is King Jesus to reign eternally and get everything he deserves. And I, for one, speaking on behalf of the church here, hope that we can do that this month, that we can give Jesus all the honour he deserves. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Tough words, Father, in Malachi, but we praise you for the lessons that we learn from it. Father, help us be a devoted people, not giving you dreadful, half-hearted sacrifices, but instead giving you everything that we have. And Father, we say now, we are all for Jesus. We're all for you. Every part of us, everything we have, everything who we are is yours. Father, take it, use it which, whichever way you want to use it. And Father, we pray that through that, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, would get all the glory, all the honour and all the praise. And that is why we pray in the name of Jesus, in his precious and wonderful name. Amen.